Peace, everybody. Welcome back to A Thousand Cuts, a Black Socialist in America podcast. This episode is bound to be a good one. I'm joined by my co-host, Glenn. Say what's up to the people, Glenn. Hey, what's going on, folks? And we have a special guest today. We have St. Andrew of the YouTube channel, St. Andrewism. Andrew, I'm sure our audience have at least a little bit of overlap. But if you don't mind saying a few words by way of introduction. Hey, I am St. Andrew. Uh, I run a YouTube channel, St. Andrewism, where I talk about topics ranging from climate resilience to black anarchism to really anything I feel like learning about and talking about. I'm also an artist and a writer. I write poetry and fiction, and I also occasionally dabble in digital art. And I'm just really happy to be here today. Man, I'm happy you're here as well. You know, it's a tenet of the left communion and getting together and I'm happy to be expressing that today. I didn't know you were also an artist. Are you working on anything currently? Not right now. I recently finished, well, it wasn't exactly a project of my own creation, but more so something that I facilitated. And that was the Sulapunk 2021 art collab, where I had people in my discord submit artwork based on the theme of Sulapunk. Because I am a firm believer in envisioning a better future, you know, and I think that art plays a key role in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a bit of an artist myself. I have to check that out. And uh, next time you hold one of these, I'll try to submit a piece. Oh, nice. Looking forward to it. So as anti-capitalists, inherent to what's called the left, we're spread across the globe pretty thin. And we're spread out over an infinite number of identities. And we tend to spend a lot of time talking about history and theory and the successes and failures of past anti-capitalists or supposedly anti-capitalist rebellions or the concreteness of long stale theory written by long dead white men. But today, as St. Andrew was saying, we, we look to the future. I wanted to preface today's topic with a few words. If you guys will forgive me, I, I don't remember the source exactly, but it's about the incompleteness of the idea and how when we think of a home right now, something that's protect and comfort us is not what we face when we look into reality. And when we think of a home in reference to the communities we live in, we aren't actually discussing or we aren't actually seeing community. And the same thing when faced with the actuality of non-human life in conjunction with those communities. And I don't think it's necessary for me to really talk about nation states and the failure to fulfill, you know, its nomenclature or role as home. Today's topic is solar pump. And I'll, I'll pass it to Andrew so you can lead us into the discussion. What are the, the basic principles of solar punk or the basic ideas? Right. So I would say that solar punk is a way of envisioning, a way of approaching politics, perhaps. It's still something that I have sort of floated around my head as to how to exactly to describe the role of solar punk in the broader zeitgeist. But I think I'm confident enough to say that solar punk is a vision of the future grounded in the present that seeks to synchronize and synergize the relationship between humanity and nature, as well as to sort of heal the 
artificial separation that exists between those two concepts. We also seek to look to positive uses of technology to facilitate a brighter, sustainable future for all of the Earth's inhabitants. Man, yeah, that's what solar punk is to me. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, solar punk is an interesting concept. Like I've looked at, you know, a few pieces of artwork and stuff that are labeled as solar punk, you know, typically aesthetically speaking. And like, I've seen a few different blogs and stuff on Tumblr and like other places over the years. And it's interesting to see it like kind of spur up as a narrative of a future that could be something that's more, I don't want to say utopian, but something that's more like holistic and grounded in, you know, the actual environment that we live in and just seeing its evolution over like these last few years. Because do you know the origin of solar punk? Like when it really started getting prevalence and and more popularity? I feel like it was kind of recently. Yeah. So, I mean, it first started in the early 2010s on Tumblr, but it's really gained a lot more prevalence, I would say, in the last year, especially. And I can tell because it really went from when I first released that video on what is solar punk all the way back in, I think it was October or November of 2020. Mm. You know, I got a little bit of interest and stuff. And, you know, this solar punk subreddit, for example, was, you know, pretty in tune with it. And they were always like, they have been for a while, at least a decent amount of people who were following solar punk and into solar punk and stuff. But I really, I'm not exactly sure what it was that sort of sparked this heightened interest in the subject. I'd like to say that it was like a combination of, you know, different people talking about it more, mm-hmm. people looking for something that could fill this sort of gap that they've been experiencing in terms of, you know, all the stuff is happening in the world and we feel powerless and there aren't any positive visions in the media right now. You know, there's a lot of negative stuff, a lot of apocalyptic stuff and a lot of right. dy- dystopian stuff, but to say that we have a positive vision of change and especially a positive vision of change that we can implement like right now, rather than some hypothetical, like see Star Trek. It's, I think that's what's been invigorating people lately because out of the pandemic and, you know, with the pandemic still going on and with climate change happening all around us, people are looking for something to keep them from sliding into the pit of despair, I would say. Yeah, and in in popular culture, we're often lacking, like you said, more positive narratives and frameworks that people can attach to. Like, I can barely think of any that don't usually end in some kind of dystopian, you know, cyberpunk is usually pretty gritty and just like the extension of like massive corporations taking over the globe and, you know, the solar system or whatever. Like, what's the other ones like diesel punk and other forms of uh, other punks that are supposed to be derivatives of you know, the current social and economic relations that we have often end up just being real cruel, yeah, extrapolations of the most extreme variations of, like, things that we're currently going through. And it's just like, damn, can we get some, like you said, like, we get Star Trek, but even Star Trek is, like, very kind of nationalistic and, like, jingoistic in its own way. Yeah. You know, frameworks of diplomacy and, like, you know, shit like that. But it's not actually, like, a lot of times you look at it, like, the prime directive and stuff is pretty fucked up. Like, 
yeah, back to talking about solar punk and stuff like that. Do you know of any, just to go into this, like, before we start getting some of these questions we have pinned down, of any, like, solar punk, I guess you could say story models or RPG settings or things like that that you would direct people towards? Yeah. There might be a good way to get, you know, their imaginations brewing around that subject. Yeah, I've seen you talk about the cyberpunk game versus what, right. what would be a solar punk game. And that idea really stuck with me since I was seeing the video. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I wish I'd prepared like a list that I could recommend to people. I mean, there are a couple books and stuff that I've mentioned in various places, but different short story collections and the like. But I think as a general guide, solarpunk stories would be stories that envision a, or portray rather, a rebellion against the status quo by people who are attempting to carve out a better world. So in contrast to like cyberpunk, where it's like people rebelling, yes, but there's kind of this acceptance that the hell will persist. Soulpunk is more so we're rebelling, but we're rebelling and we're building something better. So it's really like, I like to think of Soulpunk as like the aesthetic of dual power. And so I think if you're looking at fiction like that, or if you think of creating fiction like that, keeping that in mind is a good place to start. Nice, nice. No, I like that actually. That's a really interesting way to think about it because it, it is about building like alternatives around the current existing and then at a point having that eventually become the you know superseding way of organizing as opposed to the previous mode in which you know was more extractive and stuff having a mode of production and you know localizing and socializing that doesn't just operate in an extractive manner yeah yeah and that that kind of draws us into the the first question the norm is an episode that we're currently producing right now on democracy and the of democracy. David Graeber discusses a literary influence on culture and, and, and what that does. And I was reminded of that reading just a, a really quick off note. I'm reading Percy Jackson with my son and author talks about the greatness of Western culture and how the greatness of Western culture is the Greek gods following Western culture throughout from Greece all the way up to now in America. And in those episodes, you, you, like you'll hear my ideas on that. So I won't go too much in that, but that idea that culture is, is kind of imposed on us or, or we, we gain it in, in some way through a literary tradition and through art and through culture, dance and the food we eat. The first question I had was how does solar punk embody the idea of ecology creating a, you, you discussed this a little bit, but creating a reciprocal relationship between what Murray Bookchin calls first and second nature. And how, you know, how is this displayed in the art and literature? Right. So for those listeners who may not be aware, I would say that first and second nature are concepts that Bookchin proposed to explain our relationship with nature, quote unquote, and ourselves, right? So our biological evolutionary history, we call first nature produces a human social nature, which we call second nature. And so second nature is always going to be a creation of the first nature, be a manifestation of that first nature. So second nature, while we might think of it as like, oh, cities, cars, that kind of thing. When you think of that as unnatural, it is just as natural as a beehive or a dam in the sense that it's coming from our first nature and manifesting out as our 
second nature. And so we really shouldn't be minimizing that, right? So that's one. Second nature, as we understand it, is flexible. We've seen all kinds of arrangements of human society and human creativity all over the world in different cultures and different environments. And so we know that we are very flexible when it comes to our second nature. So we could be able to create environments that can suit our first nature. In some cases, it doesn't, it suits aspects of our first nature, but not other aspects of it. In some cases, it goes contrary to our first nature, which is kind of how we're in the situation we're now. But our second nature is really something that I think solar punk is trying to create and adapt, right? So our second nature being our response, our biophysical circumstances is I think what solar punk is trying to shape. And that's really the relationship, I think, between those concepts. Yeah. And I, I think on a previous interview, once again, you, you forgive me if I forget the exact interview, but you're discussing the difference between the environmental movement and greenwashing and, and, and what you would describe as solar pump. Well, I was wondering if you just, you can discuss the boundaries between greenwashing and environmentalism and, and, and actual sustainable change. Right. So I think greenwashing is really just like, it's a marketing ploy. And what really distinguishes greenwashing from actual sustainable environmental practice is an understanding and an application of whole systems thinking, right? So it isn't just a matter of, you know, oh, well, solar panels and solar panels are good. So slap solar panels on this and that makes it green. Or it's not a matter of, oh, well, you know, if I make this steel and glass skyscraper with some trees on it, that makes it green. No. <laughs> an awareness of whole systems thinking, an application of whole systems thinking is how we are able to distinguish between those two things, right? So whole systems thinking, for those who don't know, is a principle of permaculture design, right? It's a method to understand how elements and systems are related and how they influence one another within a whole. So for example, if you got whether it comes to things like architecture, whether it comes to things like products or lifestyles, just whatever it is, with whole system thinking, you want to take into account not just production or not just distribution. You want to look at the impact of production, the impact of distribution and the impact of consumption and disposal and whatever on water, on the sun, on the soil, on the air, on the flora and fauna, and on human beings, and on our social systems, right? So, and looking at how those different impacts and consequences interact and cause further consequences down the line. So I think what distinguishes greenwashing from like truly environmental practice is that greenwashing has this veneer of, you know, environmental sustainability, Whereas actual environmental sustainability is actually focused on how it impacts every part of the system it's part of. Yeah, the kind of the exact opposite of what we have, not kind of, but the exact opposite of what we have today. Yeah, yeah. externalities are a motherfucker, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, so like externalities, right? So that's like, like kind of an example of greenwashing. You know, you might look at something like ethically produced or like, I don't know, like vegan leather or something, right? And it's, well, okay, 
That's a bad example because people know that's plastic. I hope. But let me think of a good example. Can I say this? That there's just like, there's this sustainable clothing store that pops up or whatever. And it claims to be also good for the environment or whatever. But it's manufactured on the other side of the globe in piss poor conditions. So that's negatively impacting the people there, right? And then the factory that's being produced in produces waste, which impacts the groundwater and the air and the community and the health of the people in that community, you know? And then when it comes to reaching your door, you have a whole international distribution system, right? And all these supply chains and that shipping container boat that's like going from one side of the Pacific to the other. And all these processes are, you know, impacting the water, impacting the air, impacting the entire system, right? So if you want to look at an actual ethical, sustainable method of production, something that we should be gearing ourselves towards, it's not like that we're going to like completely shut down all international, like sharing or movement of goods or anything, but it's more so that we are going to need to scale down and localize where we can the essentials so that people are able to sustain themselves without having to rely on these massive networks and breakdowns. And yeah, people can be truly autonomous and environmentally ethical. <laughs> so things like yeah. local artisans and local producers and stuff who can create sturdy products, right? Because that's part mm -hmm. of it. There's this sort of search for what is the most sustainable building material, but oftentimes the most sustainable building material is what is closest by, right? right. That sort of principle, I think, is something that could be applied to a lot more than just sustainable construction, but also the basics, the fundamentals of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. And that was kind of actually something I wanted to talk to you about a little bit because I think it's kind of I won't say part and parcel but it's very entwined with the ideas around solar pump it would be like localizing production like getting down with more like micro production getting more down with like sourcing in like using your surrounding you know area to be able to facilitate the needs of the people in your region right. and also and not, not just like, use them but also sustain them yeah exactly exactly and especially like you know like how, especially here in like, you know, the U.S. and stuff, people expect to have every goddamn fruit and veggie like available all year round and stuff like that. Like yeah. getting away from those practices and like changing expectations. Our, yeah. yeah, exactly. Changing expectations and not just doing it because we know it's the right thing to do. And because, you know, it'd be good for the planet, but because it just, it just makes sense. Like, I, I don't know, like to me, we have these unrealistic like and i think a lot of this comes from like the u.s and like western cultures around like manifest destiny and shit and like right. we think we can literally just manifest anything and like in some <laughs> senses we can create these you know conditions where you can have things from across the globe you know but at what cost yeah and so if you can get into that a little bit talking about those elements we would love to hear your thoughts around that Right. So yeah, like I think it's going to require a shift in terms of expectations because we are so used to all of us, uh, but especially those of us in more developed parts of the world, 
we're very much used to sort of instant gratification and some more so than others. And we're very used to not having to think about where the stuff we get comes from, right? And so that's kind of what contributes to this sort of mass consumerism that we see this rampant runway consumerism that's just part of what's destroying the planet, right? So I think an important thing we need to emphasize, and I think an important part of a solar punk ethos is a recognition of where things come from, right? I see sometimes people expressing these sentiments that, oh, you know, well, we'll still have everything and more under communism, but, you know, we'll all be free and that kind of thing. But I think that belies an ignorance of the processes and the mass pain that goes into like a lot of convenience, right? So unless we can figure out ways to, for example, ship, for example, mine certain minerals in a way that isn't like decimating the earth, decimating the health of miners and destroying communities. And I mean, what many people don't realize is slavery and mining have had, have kind of been best buddies since the very beginning. Like the whole mining process is one that was typically undertaken throughout human history by slaves because mining kind of sucks. So understanding that, for example, and perhaps letting go of expectations that, oh, well, other people have to go and risk their lives and their health and their safety to go and mine these things so that I can have this convenience whenever I want. I think that's part of it. And I'm not saying that, you know, that means that we'll never have technology again. I'm not saying that we have to all go back to like foraging and living in forests and whatever. But I think being conscious, at the very least being conscious of the harm that the blood, the literal blood that goes into convenience in certain parts of the world is very important being aware of that and having that awareness allows us to think then, okay, so how do we ameliorate this? How do we fix this? How can we organize this in a way so that we can minimize suffering or end it, or, or rather end it altogether so that all of us can enjoy a standard of living that is dignified, that is healthy and that is free and safe, right? But I think the only way we can come up with those solutions is if we at first acknowledge that the things that what we enjoy is often very harmful. I think ignoring that, like some people like to do, is what's the word I'm looking for? Let's just say, I think it's a mistake. Oh yeah, many, many of the oppressive structures of our society aren't just oppressive in their hierarchical structures, but they're also oppressive in the sense that they literally had to, there was a, like, you know, a blood contract in the many senses for many of the things around the world. Yeah, no, I, I hear you though. Like, it's definitely a situation where people really detach themselves from what exactly is the cost that's being exchanged for the goods and services that we take for granted on a day-to-day. Like, especially yeah. like we take, for instance, like most people love chocolate. Chocolate is pretty much across the board produced with child slavery. And it's like people are yes. okay to turn a blind eye to that. 
with few exceptions. Yeah, yeah there, there are some exceptions, I mean, of course. shout out to Trinidad's Cocoa Trader. I'm not sure if people know this, but Trinidad has some of the best cocoa in the world. Oh, okay. Yeah, and we don't use child slavery. That's fantastic. No, no, I didn't know that, actually. That's really cool. So I wonder what would be possible to get some of that in my area. But again, you know, conveniences that may need to be passed on because it's not in my area, right? But yeah, or even just thinking about, like you said, well, like clothing and stuff, like there's a lot of, you know, really bad conditions that people work under just to produce, you know, really simple clothing and stuff and really, you know, fast modes of production. But also, even when that stuff is produced and shipped and sold across the world, a lot of it ends up in landfills and shit too. Yeah, and so... As we were discussing uh, with regards to localization of production and things like that, what are some of your thoughts around some of the different, I won't say solutions, but different technology and things that exist out there, you know, with regards to microfabrication, such as 3D printers and how they might tie into some of the practice of localizing and bringing down the production to the level where people can kind of do it on like a DIY level? Right. So, I mean, honestly, I'm not too versed in like, that sort of technology and how sustainable that sort of technology may be. But I think a good place to sort of potentially explore the manifestation and the liberatory potential of that technology is in this book that I read recently, a fiction book that mm-hmm. has some sort of silicon elements to it. It's called Walk Away by Cory Doctorow. Mm. And uh, part of the world of that book includes these three printers that these different communities have and they're able to share these blueprints for clothes and for prefab buildings and designs and so there's this constant sort of open access cross-pollination of different ideas and stuff and people are just printing them out and putting them out into the world and it was kind of beautiful to read, honestly. So I'm hoping that that sort of technology is something that would be sustainable and possible for communities to really invest in and utilize, but remains to be seen. I still need to do more research on it. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And yeah, I would agree as well. Definitely need to do more research on it. I'm not as versed on that stuff as I would like to be as well, but I'm definitely very interested in it contour crafting and all that stuff. So it was kind of interesting to me for a minute now as I've moved into thinking about how to, you know, change our relationship with production and stuff. But yeah, on that subject though, too, though, I was, because you, you mentioned the story by Cory Doctorow and I was just kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts around, you know, using these narrative structures to try to get people to start engaging with these ideas, you know, through fiction, specifically, you know, in various media, because I know you're an artist as well. What are your thoughts around the, I don't want to say it's like a, a way of entryism, but like the the ways in which these could, these stories that we tell through these narratives and obviously through, you know, the way in which we engage with these aesthetics and these this art movement, this, again, I don't want to call it ideology, but there's this framework on a local level. What are your thoughts around using these as narrative tools. Right. So honestly, I know for a fact that it works. I know that it works because of the feedback and the response that came not only from my videos on Solarpunk or from the collaboration I did on Solarpunk with another YouTuber, not just 
those projects, but also just the general, as it's gotten more popular, the general response to it from tweets to Tumblr posts to the recent Soul Punk magazine that is now being put out, it's now being worked on. It's clearly filling a niche that people have been looking for. Even people who were not previously into politics and that sort of thing. People were seeking out, people have been seeking out something that they can sort of envision and build on and work towards. And I'm not saying Soul Punk is the be all and end all of it, but it's clearly something a lot of people appreciate. So yeah, with the discussion we're having about solar punk right now and, you know, kind of getting into some of the, the nitty gritty of it and its connections to people's prefigurative politics, what are some of your thoughts around, and maybe even your own experiences with how solar punk has connected to, you know, your thoughts around anarchism or maybe even social ecology or communalism, especially from the perspective of someone who is in the, the black or, you know, new African diaspora you know internationally if you have any thoughts around how those two differing aspects may intersect right well i mean personally i think the broad strokes are pretty consistent worldwide there might be some like nitty-gritty aspects of it that differ but as it be with solar punk and anarchism the fundamentals are the same you know and solar punk is really incomplete without anarchism my opinion because as we know, the state is not going to sit back and just, you know, let a solar punk society blossom, you know, patriarchy is not going to just, after thousands of years of domination, just lie down and allow the liberation of all genders and all people, right? And capitalism, obviously, while may attempt to co-opt solar punk, the essence of solar punk is not something that capitalism is going to be touching. So. Where that is concerned, free association is just as relevant. Autonomy is just as relevant. Direct action is just as relevant. Cooperation is just as relevant. Mutual aid, feminism, anti-hierarchy. It's all just as relevant across the diaspora and in that whole intersection of anarchism and soul punk. Yeah, I feel you on that. And with that being said, just to tie it together, what are your thoughts around the ways in which the solar punk aesthetic, as we may have witnessed with a recent yogurt commercial, the way in which it could be co-opted by corporate and capitalistic forces and others? Right. I mean, with that yogurt commercial, it was very interesting because on the one hand, you saw what was clearly, in many respects, a solar punk society. And I mean, it wasn't perfect. For example, the fact that there was a little girl in that ad who went away in this hover bus to school. Whereas I think that a solar punk society would have a more flexible sort of education system. Or the fact that despite it being like sensibly sustainable, you still had these single use yogurt containers and oat milk like <laughs> containers being flown in by these hoverbots and it's like so you have the aesthetics of solar punk but you're still using single-use plastics it's like yeah it doesn't add up it's some absurdity there so that really i think is a good case study in like t of capitalist attempts to co-opt solar punk 
And I mean, it's something that people will fall for because people just aren't aware of exactly how destructive every aspect of the system is. Mm -hmm. But so that, that makes it very easy in some respects to co-opt. But I think once we have people who are principled in their, you know, understanding of the destructive intersections of all these systems and they're able to point out these things and show people the right path, I think we can build resilience to co-optation because oh, yeah. there are limits to co-optation. There are certain things that the state, that capitalism is not going to co-opt, you know? And I think those areas are areas we need to emphasize. You know, the parts of Swill Punk that are definitively and definitely 100% punk, you know? I think you're absolutely correct that there's a, 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 you know, in the general population, just everyone, there's a large percentage of people who don't know how destructive their habits are and how their habits contribute to the, okay. And of course we know it's a few corporations who do most of the pollutant and things like that, but even on the left or what people, you know, as people call themselves leftists or communists or socialists or all these different identities, there's a varying number of views. You recently tweeted, the tweet ended up causing a bit of a stir. The tweet read, mass industry requires mass agriculture, mass labor, mass transport, mass resource extraction, mass construction, mass policing, mass military. I don't see a way out of the apocalyptic status quo that doesn't involve dismantling mass industry. And so the question, my question would be is, how do you think we as a society should go about dismantling mass industry and industrial culture? And then the, I guess, you know, just to connect it in, the response to that tweet, even from, like I said, people who call themselves leftists was ultimately not wanting to give up their lifestyle. Yeah. So with regards to the response, I think I'll answer that first. I mean, after a while, I mute the tweets that I put out. So I may have missed like some of the more negative responses, but I think some good dialogues did come out of it. But I do understand what you're saying though, in terms of like, there's this general unwillingness to sort of confront the destructive aspects of the systems that we are so comfortable with. How we navigate out of that is something that's still rife with contention, confusion, and ignorance. I don't mean that negatively, you know? I think that whether we like it or not, mass industry simply is not sustainable. There may be elements that we will need to sustain. For example, with, with regard to medical and pharmaceutical technology, obviously, but there's a lot of aspects of mass industry that are simply non-essential and can be better and those needs or wants can be better fulfilled with a more localized approach, right? But the point of that tweet was really just to point out that this thing is like literally destroying the planet, whether we like it or not, something has to change. And I don't have any answers as to how that can change. I think it's a process that we will develop and figure out and tune in along the way. But I just know that it does have to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I enjoy the linking between the ideas of solar punk and of dual power. If dual power is us doing for ourselves in face of oppressive state apparatus and solar punk looks like a, a, a possible outcome of that, you know, us growing our own food, us recreating what a house means and what a community means and what our relationship to the land means. And those things, Murray Bookchin spoke about how romanticism was about love and attraction and repulsion and, and 
you know, and how that was the language of philosophy and science before the enlightenment. And afterwards it became the dead numbers of science and numbers and things like that. And like I mentioned earlier on the theory side of things, it can get really stale really fast and it, it can get really gloomy really fast. And just in the research in this episode and this conversation with you, the, like I said before, we're not looking in the past or what was done and, and what might work is looking to the future and what's possible for us. And, and I'm, I'm really digging that about it. I, I can't lie. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I would also real quick, just to kind of piggyback off of what we're just getting at a little bit with regards to mass industry and our needs to really shift things. What are some thoughts that you might have surrounding the ways in which that this could be used to maybe highlight different relationships to labor and cause you know, obviously you know, uh, a lot of our relationship to our current system of mass production is through our jobs, right? We, the people who work the docks, the people who work the factories, a way to shift people in this world is often through labor and organizing people in labor. Do you see this as another vehicle that could be instrumentalized to be something that's more positive with regards to people's relationship to labor and how solar punk might feed into that in any way? Sorry, could you repeat? Yeah, you know, just so like, for instance, here in the U.S., people were really trying to get people to mobilize and get invigorated by the Green New Deal and like trying to approach labor relationships to the environment in that way. Do you see the solar punk art movement and, you know, the ideas around solar punk and the narrative structures as how it relates to labor and how it could be used as a vehicle to get people to maybe be invigorated? towards changing their labor relations and obviously with regards to the environment. Yeah. So I think it really ties into post-work and anti-work really, which is something that's kind of been popping off lately on Reddit, surprisingly enough. This whole thing where basically people are realizing that they're kind of sick of the BS that they have to put up with at work and that kind of thing. And more and more people, especially the younger generation, are realizing that we don't want to spend our lives, our entire livelihoods, you know, working and slaving away really for somebody else. And we don't want to spend our lives slaving away on things not fulfilling or not enjoyable or just draining our essence, you know? So I think as solar punk gains more prominence, as more people realize that we can live in a world that is kind, that is safe, that is sustainable that is ecologically balanced and liberated, truly liberated in the sense of everyone having the ability and the autonomy to decide their own directions separate. And I think we will see a lot more integration when it comes to like the conversation around work and labor and sort of shifting gears away from this domination of work in our lives and this idea that we have to continue on this trajectory where labor is concerned, recognizing, and the pandemic course has something to do with this, recognizing that there is labor that is necessary and then there's like what Graper called bullshit jobs and 
being able to move away from those bullshit jobs, I think is part of the process as well. I think more people are realizing that we don't have to do things the way we're doing things right now. And solar punk, I think, is a way of showing people, here's how we can do things. Yeah. And to, to add to that, I feel like when you look at the different things that, you know, say fallen under that aesthetic and that appeal, it seems like a lot of those stories tend to have more of like a cooperative like element to them. Like it's about, you know, working in your community in a way where everyone has purpose, everyone has meaning and like there's an abundance, you know, like I think that's another thing is that like everyone can have their needs met and then some, but it just requires a bit of collaboration and being in unison with the environment that you're embedded in, right? Like I feel like that's really important elements of that, that ethos and that, that aesthetic and capturing that is probably, to me anyway, it would be probably be like, if you can capture that essence in, you know, trying to portray this, those are the things that are really resonate with people and get them to think about one to change their relationships, you know, and not just be tied down to these, you know, these more extractive forces that ultimately tend to just cause more harm than good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tony, did you want to go ahead and close us out the last couple questions? Yeah, I think it was just one more. And that last question was, could you share any text or information or any examples of the implementation of solar punk outside of art or any active solar punk projects? Yeah. So, I mean, text and the implementation of solar punk would range from fiction to just general anarchist and communalist and eco-anarchist literature, but with regards to like actual projects, I'm hoping to see more of those popping off in between now and next year. I don't really know of any right now, but I think as Solar Punk gains more popularity and people are realizing the different strategies and methods they can take to implement it, I'm hoping to see more of that popping off very soon. Yeah. I know you released a video recently that talked about some Solar Punk solutions that could be acted on recently. If I'm not mistaken, that was the video I saw yours that included the concept of sea bombing drones. And I thought that was really, really cool. and something that could maybe be a fun project to engage in. Yeah. I think overall, once again, if I can compare, because my entire leftist experience has been, well, based on my situation, it's been very individual based. Like it's, it's, just, it's been me kind of wrestling with books and, and like I said, theories and things like that. And, and like I said, this kind of turns my vision towards the future. And in that, you know, that really tunnel vision, reading a lot and not interacting with the world and, actually not interacting with things that I used to interact with as much, you know, reading fiction and things like that because of the nature of the fiction. I mentioned the reading Percy Jackson, my son earlier, but I'm excited to see the projects that come out of the solar punk movement and what that means for the left and what that means for the future. I want to thank everyone for joining us for this interview with St. Andrew. St. Andrew, did you want to plug your... Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at underscore St. Andrew. I have a Patreon as well, patreon.com slash the intro. And of course, my YouTube channel, Seen Andreason. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. It was good to have you on. We had a great conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Aside from the few audio issues, I'm glad we were able to get this conversation and hopefully the first of many conversations started. I can't wait to have you back next time. Likewise.
Take care.